Esther chapter 2. In this chapter, we get the events which lead to Esther's rise as queen. Vashti is brought low in chapter 1, and then Esther is going to be exalted in chapter 2. Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, verses 7 and 8, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He has set the world upon them. And then we know Mary rejoiced in Luke chapter 1, verses 52 and 53. He hath brought down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. We don't know if Vashti was haughty in her refusal to obey her husband, the king, or not. But we do know that's how God operates He brings down the prideful, he lifts up the the meek. And it's a theme that we see throughout the entire Bible. God exalts the lowly, and he brings down the lofty. And Jesus in Luke 18, 14 said, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. James 4, 10 Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, And be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Whether Vashti was prideful or not, one thing is for sure, God is going to take a humbled, orphaned woman from among the Babylonian captives, still living in exile under Persian rule. And in His providence, God is going to exalt Esther to the position of queen for a very specific purpose. We saw in chapter 1 that it was in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign when he hosted a 180-day feast. Can you imagine the bill? For that. 180 days. And he's showing off all the riches of his empire to all of his nobles and princes from all of the 127 provinces that he ruled over. And then, for good measure to cap off a six-month party, let's add another seven days. Amen. And so seven days, they add this feast to it where everybody's invited there in Shushan and And so he he throws this seven-day feast in the court of the garden at his palace. But on the seventh day, the king became drunk with wine. And he had the bright idea to invite his wife Vashti to parade her beauty before all the men. But she refused. I believe she was justified in doing so. It was a request that the king would have not made had he been sober-minded. But in his pride, he became embarrassed and insulted by his wife's refusal to obey him. And so at the recommendation at Mimucum, Ahasuerus issues a drunken decree that Vashti be deposed 
and never come into His presence again. One hasty response in your life can change the entire direction of your life. One bad decision can put you on a completely different trajectory than what God has for you. And here's a man in his drunken state makes a decision he, he wouldn't have made otherwise. And he puts away his wife and it altered his life and it certainly altered the course of Vashti's life. One act in, in haste can lead to a life of regret. It can certainly be the source of regret. And if after a sinful decision, people continue in their folly, then Proverbs 13.1 will be their end, which says this, Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. And so, as we closed last week, if you don't want to live with regret in your life, and you don't want misery, the best course of action in your life is to obey God and His Word. This leads us into chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of, of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Ashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times already in our series, but I need to mention this one more time. This will be the last time, I think, that we'll bring this up. But remember, some believe that Ahasuerus here is the same as Xerxes in secular history. And the more I study this, the more I lean in that direction. If, if it is true, then we know that the intent of Ahasuerus' 187-day feast was to try to get buy-in from his leaders to go launch a military campaign against Greece in order to expand his empire westward. And in Daniel 11:2 it says, And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Now the whole reason I've been bringing this up is because of how chapter 2 begins. It says, after these things. And I mentioned there may be more than meets the eye here in verse 1 of chapter 2. Those who are of the opinion that Ahasuerus and Xerxes are one and the same believe that after these things, and it goes on to say, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, that that is in reference to when he has now returned from his campaign against Greece. And that, that would have included, for any history buffs in here, and most people fall asleep when I talk history, I love history. And for those of you that are interested in history, this would have been the time frame of the famous Battle of Thermopylae where Leonidas, the king of Sparta, and his men famously held their ground to the death, which ultimately gave rise to the lore and the myths of Sparta's 300. It's true there were 300 Spartans, but there were also more. 
and you actually got to study history to get more than just what Hollywood tells you. Um, you see, Greek, Greece at the time was made up of city-states, and they all had little kings and their own little sections. And so they had soldiers from all different city-states that would have been represented. Anyway, I don't want to bore you with my awesome knowledge of <laughs> that I just learned. <laughs> all right. So when Xerxes invaded Greece, he, he did so with perhaps the greatest military force ever. He, some have the number at one million troops. Some have it at three, and a lot today are questioning how high that number may have been. Some have it far lower, but most have it somewhere in that million troops range. And he had twice as many ships as Greece. He had over 800 ships all going against Greece. And there, there's one humorous story about Xerxes. If this is a Hasuerus, this will give you an idea of what kind of man he was. When he went against Greece, in order to get his troops there, he wanted to build a bridge over what is now called the Strait of Gallipoli. And, and when he arrived, he found that a storm had caused the seas to rise and to destroy the bridge that they were building to get the troops across. And so he's infuriated, so much so that he walks down to the ocean with a belt and he whips it 300 times. And then he takes shackles, and he puts them in the ocean in some bizarre move to try to enslave the sea to his will. That's messed up. Can you imagine trying to beat back the sea to obey you? Well, that's what kind of man Xerxes was. We don't know if it's necessarily this man, but uh, I, that's funny to me. And, and I heard one account where it said, when they came back, they finally built the bridge, but when they came back, it had been destroyed again. <laughs> I, amen. So Xerxes' invasion of Greece, it eventually failed, and it's believed by some that when chapter 2 opens here, this is what it's talking about. After these things, after his defeat by the Greeks, when his wrath was appeased, he returns home, and he's now a defeated man. And so the dates vary, but it could be anywhere between three to four years has passed from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And, and I'm not saying I'm dogmatic on, on any of this. It could just be only a short period of time. It could just be after he slept it off and a few days has passed and he realized what he's done. But anyway, he, he comes back, he's bummed out, he's depressed, and whether he came back or he's just kind of coming to his senses again, he now desires the comfort and the company of Vashti, his former queen. You know, sometimes if we would just learn to calm down, things look a lot different in the morning. But in our haste, we lash out, we do something stupid. When if we just would have slept on it, maybe in the morning we would have been thinking a little more clearly. Just a thought there. Either way, whether he's coming back from, from a campaign against Greece or if he's just kind of a few days later here, it changes nothing to the context. Here's the king. His wrath is appeased. He remembers his former queen, and he remembers what she had done, the Bible says, and what he had decreed. And it could be that the intent in that statement is to show us the contrast of how her offense didn't match 
his punishment. He thought about what she had done, and then he remembered what he had decreed against her. And it could be telling us that he realized that was pretty dumb. Understanding that perhaps she was just refusing his command because there was a modesty issue there. And that she was just trying to obey the law of the Persians. But now he's grieved for such a hasty and angry decision while he was intoxicated. And it's reminiscent of the Charlie Rich song. I woke up this morning, realized what I had done. I stood alone in the cold gray dawn. I knew I'd lost my morning sun. I lost my head. I said some things. Now comes the heartaches that morning brings. I know I'm wrong and I couldn't see. I let my world slip away from me. So hey, did you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world? And if you did, was she crying? And Vashti means beautiful. And he, and he sent this woman away. And remember from last week that the, de- the decree of a Persian king can never be changed. Not even by the king. It was a man's law, but it's irrevocable. And, and so the king who decreed this law now has to bow to the law that he made. You would think a king could just say, well, I don't want to do that. I changed my mind. But you know, God too has laws that He can't change. He can't change them because if He would, it would change His character. And God isn't going to do that. And so God, He said in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. And God's Word will never change. The Bible says in Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. And in God's Word, we read this law. The wages of sin is death. God can't change that law. It it is what God has instituted, and those who die in their sin will spend an eternity in a devil's hell. It's God's law. Well, listen, that's a problem if if sinners are going to die, because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we've got a problem on our hands. And and by the way, let me say this. What the Bible calls sin is still sin. It doesn't matter the morality of our day that tries to change definitions and everything else and implement laws that go against God's Word. If God says it's sin, it's sin. And so God's morality stays the same. It'll never change. And God's definition of sin will never change. So we don't get to decide what the definition of sin is in order that we might soothe our guilty consciences. A man told Hudson Taylor once, I don't feel like a sinner. And Dr. Taylor replied, if you don't feel like one, then believe God, you are. (laughs) Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why wouldn't Jesus seek the righteous? Because those who see themselves as righteous and without sin don't see their need for a Savior. And according to their own estimation of themselves, they shouldn't have to worry about death seeing they believe themselves to be righteous. Meanwhile, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So we don't get to determine what sin is, but we also must accept God's estimation of us. And that is we are all unrighteous sinners. So how is it that God can grant 
eternal life when His law demands death and He cannot change His law? The answer is God sent Christ to live a perfect life in order to be the sinless sacrifice. But why would Jesus die if He was sinless? Because God made Him to be sin for us. Whose sin made Him to be sin? It was our sin. The sin of humanity. Your sin and my sin. And once He became sin, He had to die according to God's law. He died for us and in our place. And in so doing, God can now grant us eternal life without changing His law because Christ fulfilled the law. This is so good. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I already, already hinted at this. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believe. This is such a blessed truth here. In Christ we can have life, and yet God is still true to His law. And actually... It is the law of God that ultimately points us to Christ. The Bible says the law is our schoolmaster taking us uh, to school, to Christ. The law leads us to Him. And then when we get to the end of the law, Christ is the end of the law. When you get to the end of the law, there's Christ standing waiting to welcome you with His grace. Whoop! So it's just a beautiful thing here. And in seeing Christ in verse 1 of our text, we find that through Christ's horrific death, the wrath of God is appeased for those who are found in Christ by placing their faith and trust in Him. Then after Christ's sacrifice, God, after He had forsaken His only begotten Son, He then remembers Jesus. It's not that He forgot, okay, but... Just looking at verse 1 here. God saw what He had done and what was decreed against Jesus. And did you know the punishment didn't match how He lived? He was perfect. He was sinless. But He took our sin upon Him. God's law had to be fulfilled when He became sin. And His law had to be fulfilled if you and I had any hope of inheriting eternal life. After three days, after His wrath was, was appeased, He raised Jesus from the grave, having accepted the blood of His sacrifice. And now Christ sits at God's right hand forevermore. What a picture here. Here we find King Ahasuerus, who in His wrath deposed His queen. She was innocent according to their law. He's essentially sacrificed His wife for no trespass on her part that we are aware of. And now with his wrath appeased, he can see that the punishment didn't fit what he considered to be the crime. And he desires her presence once again, but he can't raise her back up to sit at his side. Ahasuerus couldn't change his own law, though I'd imagine at this point he'd like to. He couldn't have Vashti back even if he wanted to. And how many do you suppose have decreed the sinless Christ out of their life only to wish after their life was over that they would have done things differently. We get a glimpse of this in Luke chapter 16. The rich man dies and goes to hell 
And he cries out, have mercy on me. But it was too late. His fate had already been sealed due to his rejection of God. Well, in verse 2, the king's servants recognize the king is despondent. He's bummed out. He may even be feeling dejected if this is, in fact, after a military campaign. And we need to just pause for a moment and recognize that status and money can never purchase peace of mind. Here's a man who is a ruler of an enormous empire. From India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. He's got great status. Here's a man who has more wealth at his disposal than likely anybody else alive at this time. He is a man of great riches. And despite all that he was in society and all that he had at his disposal, he finds himself in this depressed condition while sitting in his palatial home. Despite all the servants he had around him and no doubt the concubines that he had, in this moment, he misses the relationship he had with his wife. Isn't it amazing how a person can progress to great heights in their careers and how a person's bank account can swell to where they can pretty much do what they want and buy the toys that they want and have great possessions and yet at home they have no peace or happiness. You can appear like things are going well outwardly, but if you don't have peace in your home, then you'll find that all your status and monetary gain is nothing in the grand scheme of things. There are things in this life which are far more valuable than money or position. God made us to desire companionship whether it's through family, friends, a marriage, people desire a deeper social connection than just mere acquaintances. When God created Adam, He concluded it's not good that man should be alone. And so God made a help meet for him. And it's just how we're designed by God to have this con- I know there's rare exceptions, but we're just made by God to have those connections. And no amount of money, power, or running around can give a person the deeper fulfillment they desire, which we ultimately understand to be found in God, but humanly speaking, that is missing, when when they don't get their act together and all they do is focus on themselves. There are far too many examples of those who became rich and famous, but they eventually discovered those things could not bring them happiness And it could not bring them peace. And sadly, they took their own lives. I did a search looking for millionaire and billionaires that committed suicide, and the internet was full of them. So I decided not to add any. There's just so many. And and it's an interesting paradox. And I don't know if that's the right word. Adrian can help me out later. People think more is going to equal joy. But for those of us in Christ we can typically look back at the leaner times as the times of great happiness, peace, and joy and a time of God's greatest blessings in our life. Adrian and I have more possessions now than we've ever had. 
But we look back at our time in Korea when we had an apartment that was far smaller than this area up here. And we had this little bitty fridge, no stove, no car, no furniture. We slept on the floor. And yet it was one of the greatest times in our marriage. More possessions and more status will not equal a better life. And it definitely will not equal a better home. With more stuff comes more problems, more concerns, and more upkeep. And now I can't help it. More money, more problems. With more status comes more responsibilities and time away. And, and more will often distract us from God. Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is. Psalm 37, 16, A little that the righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Proverbs 16, 8, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. And so I hope tonight that your life isn't out of balance. Don't pursue the riches and possessions of this world over your family. Come on, back me up. Don't pursue a social status over your family. Now, if God prospers you, praise God. But don't lose yourself your marriage, your family, your friends in the process. Stay content with such things as you have and stay humble. Now back to our text. I'll close by trying to set the stage for next time. The king, he's down and out. He remembers Vashti and what he has decreed against her. And in verse 2, the king's servants can see that the king needs to get his mind off of Vashti. So they come up with this plan in verses 2 through 4. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women under the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them, let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Ashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And so essentially, their solution is, let's have a beauty contest. And only the king gets to judge. Is it sounding like Emperor's New Groove yet? <laughs> Trot out the ladies. Let me see. Hate your hair. Probably should stop quoting. Yikes, yikes, yikes. And let me guess, you have a great personality. Is this honestly the best you can do? All right, All right my wife told me to cut it well before that point. Their plan is not the way any should go about picking their bride. For our singles, please don't ever choose your bride on looks alone. Now, that doesn't mean you have to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and take the advice of the coasters. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, 
Never make a pretty woman your wife. So from my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. Hey, they'll cook your meals on time. You may recall from our series through Genesis, you need a spouse not only where there's a romantic connection, but you have a soul connection and a spiritual connection. Looks will change over time. And interests may change over time. But your spiritual connection is to be anchored, unmovable in Christ, and it should only grow stronger as you go. But in seeking for a new wife or a Hasuerus, it's going to all be about the looks. They're going to scour the empire for eligible contestants. And the only requirement is going to be that they be fair, young virgins. So I don't think they're going to have to answer questions on how they're going to solve world hunger. (laughs) Keep in mind that this kingdom is made up of 127 provinces. And they're looking for women out of all the provinces. Even if they only brought two women from every province, that's 254 women. And I'm sure there was more. So we're talking in the hundreds here of ladies coming to, the, to Shushan to have their shot, if you will, at being queen. And next time, through this contest, we're going to see two of the major figures show up on the scene. Esther and Mordecai. Some say Mordecai. And God's providence here is going to begin to unfold before our eyes as we watch the rise of Esther to the position of queen. Let's pray.